one. If you don't have a Bible with you this evening, I would invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles. should be nearby you, maybe even in front of you, and you'll find tonight's text on page 303. And we're going to look at all of the chapter, which really falls into two simple parts. You have a crime committed, and then you have Yahweh coming to give a sentence of judgment upon that crime. And let me get us going by just reading the first half, so that's through verse 16, and then I'll pray and we will continue on together. So I do listen once, and now, once again as God is even now speaking through His perfect word to you. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house. I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. As he lay down on his bed and turned his face away, and he would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with a seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people. Set two worthless men opposite him. Let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. And take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab rose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth Jezreelite to take possession of it. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we praise you that you are a God that speaks to us, that your word is living and active, that you have breathed out this very text for our instruction, our correction, our training in righteousness. Uh, We do pray that you would grow us in the likeness of your Son, that we might see his glory even this night, and we pray it in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I came across a 
pretty recent documentary that PBS had put together on a crime committed all the way back in 1924. It was a story that rocked the city of Chicago at the time. A 14-year-old boy had been found slain in a most gruesome of manners. And as these stories so often go, it was quite clear early on that the authorities, the investigating powers, had no leads. They had no real understanding of how they were going to catch the killers. But in time, clarity came and they focused in on these two 19-year-old friends that they eventually charged with the murder and convicted in time of the same. Uh, These men pled guilty to the crime in order to escape the death sentence and they instead were jailed for the rest of their lives. And PBS titled this documentary, The Perfect Crime. Now we come in the Old Testament to what might have been considered in the land of Israel as the perfect crime. It's a crime we're going to see that, of course, doesn't go unnoticed. For the Lord knows all things, sees all things, and will call people to account for all things. And here are a group of people, a husband and a wife, the royal family, that will find a death sentence meted out on them, something they thought they had altogether gotten away with. So as we're coming to the end of our evening studies through the life and ministry of Elijah, what we find Elijah doing is, once again, what we've seen him doing so much throughout his ministry. He's confronting Ahab. He's bringing the Lord's piercing word of conviction to the king, and that's the simple theme that we're going to look at along the way tonight, is the confrontation with Ahab. And whenever we come to a scene of prophetic confrontation in the world, what you always want to recognize, students, is it's fundamentally true that by this same word and by God's Spirit, He means to confront your very conscience. Perhaps in surprising ways, perhaps even in subtle ways. And what this text is going to unfold, even though we don't have the time together tonight to investigate all the areas and lessons that we could pursue together tonight. It's a text that unveils all kinds of normal patterns that belongs to the life of God's people living in this world so full of darkness. Because it unveils how often government powers commit crimes of injustice against God's faithful people. It shows how even leaders in God's kingdom will use God's law for their own selfish and pride-filled ends. It shows us the power of God's word to bring conviction to a heart. It shows us the danger even of external repentance, not matched by this internal contrition over the reality of sin. And principally, of course, what it shows us is God judges sin. That we need to be reckoning with the reality in our own minds right from the outset tonight that there is no perfect crime. There is no sin, children, that you could commit that goes unnoticed, and ultimately unpunished. So there's three simple characters that I want to bring to the forefront along the way tonight as we look at our text and this striking story. We, we of course, have Ahab. We'll see that he's a covetous king. Then we have Jezebel. We'll see that she's a murderous queen. And we'll get through that part of the story, the text I just read a minute ago, rather quickly because the story is altogether simple, isn't it? And I want to spend the majority of our time in the second half of the text on the third character, which is, of course, is the righteous Lord as he's speaking through his servant, 
Elijah. One more time, Elijah confronting Ahab. So first of all, the character that comes to the forefront is a covetous king. And you'll see the scene opens in verse 1 of chapter 21 with Ahab's next-door neighbor. You have to picture that to understand what's going on. His next-door neighbor, this man named Naboth. He has a vineyard next to Ahab's palace. And Ahab is going to show himself to be desirous of the very same. Because, of course, in verse 2, as we just read, he says, Naboth, I want your vineyard. So I'll give you a new one for it if you give it to me. If you you don't want a new one, I'll just give you whatever your price is for your vineyard. But notice what Ahab intends to do with the vineyard. Because children, he doesn't want to keep using it as a vineyard. You see verse 2 says, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. And I'm not so sure if you're familiar with gardening realities But it's not normal to take a vineyard and turn it into a vegetable garden. Even the language there is meant to strike the attention of an ancient reader because there's another time in the Old Testament, in fact only one other time, that a vegetable garden is mentioned. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 10. You can write that down and look at it later on. It's there where Yahweh speaks of Egypt as a garden of vegetables. And of course, Israel is likened throughout the Old Testament to a vineyard. And what is Ahab's kingdom doing? What is Ahab and Jezebel's power doing? But slowly but surely, causing the nation to descend ever further into iniquity, that they are going further back and further back and further back, away spiritually from the promised land. It's as though Ahab wants to return to that place of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And here is even... A symbolic ask for the same. Give me your vineyard that I may make it a garden for my vegetables. And Ahab doesn't get the response that he wants. Notice verse 3. Naboth says, the Lord forbid. You could translate that as something like, it would be a profaning of Yahweh that I give you the inheritance of my fathers. There's, there's a godliness in Naboth's response. There's a holiness even in Naboth's rebuke here of Ahab. Because throughout the Old Testament, what uh, the Israelites were told, you could see this in a place like Leviticus 25, that of course this land belonged to Yahweh. He had redeemed it for his people. He had given it to them as their inheritance. And they were not supposed to sell it for profit. For, to give it away for that kind of greedy desire. You could lease it out, but because it was an inheritance from Yahweh to your family, you could never actually sell it. It was supposed to revert back to the family that leased it out in the year of Jubilee. And here is Naboth recognizing that, no, this this land belongs to me because ultimately this land belongs to Yahweh, and of course I'm not going to give it to you. And I'm sure many parents can read the next few verses through the lens of of a cranky young child not getting what they so desperately want. Because isn't that what is the picture that comes forward with this covetous king? Verse 4 says, Notice Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen. His wife comes along and essentially says, What are you doing? Why are you eating no food? And doesn't he complain just like a little child would? In verse 6, Well, Naboth will not give me what I want. So instead of courage and confidence, he's all cowardice and covetousness. 
Kids, what you're meant to see here is the ugliness of sin. Here, here's a king that's leading God's people, and he's nothing more than a weak, a wimpy, and a whiny leader. You're, I think, meant to see genuinely something of the ugliness of sin run amok in a man's life. And isn't it true that when such covetousness, such greed, such sinful desire runs unchecked in a person's life, that quite quickly they become nothing more than a sinful fool, a covetous king. He's got a problem. I want next door neighbor Naboth's vineyard. While his wife, Jezebel, the murderous queen, she has the solution. Because you'll notice what she says in verse 7. She asks him, do you now govern Israel? It's almost as though she asks, aren't you the king? Or are you just a puppet in the hands of someone else? That's altogether ironic, isn't it? Because, of course, Ahab is a puppet in the hands of Jezebel, as this story so often goes. And she comforts him, saying, Arise and eat, and let your heart be cheerful, and I'll take care of the business of Naboth. And the scheme, the murderous intent, is altogether simple, isn't it? She takes letters. She takes her husband's kingly royal seal and writes to the leaders and the elders of Naboth's city nearby Jezreel. And she simply says, hey, call a fast. And when Naboth sits down, put these worthless witnesses across the way from Naboth. Have them falsely charge him with blaspheming God and speaking against the king. And once those charges are established on the evidence of two witnesses, take him outside of the city and stone him to death. And it's quite noticeable, especially if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, that much of what Jezebel is doing here is just following Old Testament law. But, but she's using it to the most twisted and treacherous of ends, the murder of an innocent man. And the story goes exactly like we would probably expect it to go. They call together this fast. Naboth sits down. He's suddenly charged, and can you imagine this man's sense of the situation in that moment? What do you mean I blasphemed Yahweh and cursed the king? And of course, children, you can picture the scene, can't you? They rip him up from his seat, drag him outside of the city, and begin to kill him with stones. One of the most brutal ways of dying, such that you're beaten into a bloody pulp and you just hope the next stone that comes actually finishes you off. But it's good news for this murderous queen and her covetous king husband. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. She hears the news that Naboth is dead and she says to Ahab, Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he arose to take possession of the vineyard. So that's the crime committed. And now, as the Lord's word comes to Elijah, we get this sentence of judgment, condemnation from God above, which brings us to the third character in our text, which is the righteous Lord. One of the most famous churches in the 20th century in the Southern Baptist Convention is located in Memphis, Tennessee. It's still there. It's called Bellevue Baptist Church. And from 1927 to 1960, the, the pastor of Bellevue Baptist was a man named R.G. Lee. And it was sometime early in his ministry that he went to the church for a morning prayer meeting. 
And as the rhythm of his church went, he gave a devotional before the prayer time, and evidently the devotional uh, was moving enough that one of his deacons told him afterwards that he needed to turn the, the short prayer meeting morning devotional into an actual sermon for Sunday morning. So he did, and he preached it soon enough. And then he spent most of the rest of his life, it seems like, in all his extended ministry, R.G. Lee did, preaching this sermon. Because we have records of him preaching over 1,200 times in the coming decade. It was evidently so moving and powerful and affected. And it comes from the text before us tonight in 1 Kings chapter 21. It was a sermon that was simply titled, Payday Someday. Because what is Ahab getting ready to hear from the Lord but a payday for his sin is soon on the way. Because if you just glance your way through verse 17, 18, and 19, Yahweh tells Elijah, you need to go down and find Ahab. He's next door in Naboth's vineyard. And I'm going to tell you to mete out this sentence of judgment upon him. And look at what happens in verse 20. Elijah arrives and Ahab says to him, Have you found me, O my enemy? Remember the previous question that Ahab had asked Elijah in chapters prior was a question that called Elijah the troubler of Israel. And now the Lord's servant is nothing more than the king's enemy. And Elijah answers in the back half of verse 20, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So often throughout the Old Testament, prophets were conscience or function as something like the conscience of the king. You know, they were given to not only preach God's word and bring uh, the nation back to repentance, but so often the prophets were there to, to preach the truth to the kings, to keep them off the broad path of destruction and keep them on the narrow path that leads to life. And here is Elijah once again functioning as something like a divine conscience confronter in Ahab's life. And what does Ahab have for Elijah but nothing more than, have you found me, O oh my enemy? You know, kids, I wonder what you feel towards your parents when they tell you that you have sinned. Well, what do you feel as though the Spirit is doing when through the preaching and ministry of His Word, He confronts you in your sin? Do you ever feel that that kind of conviction is an enemy to you? And if you feel as such, you ought to be warned away from the pattern that belongs to Ahab. For God's people, of course, whenever that conviction comes, the Spirit works within them genuine sorrow over their sin. Remorse over their sin that leads to new obedience. But the word from Yahweh to Ahab comes, notice verse 21 and following. Elijah says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, or cut you off, Ahab, every male, bond or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house like Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, because you made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. So what I want to do in this brief meditation as we come even to the end together tonight, I want you to see two things about this Lord who utters a word of condemnation against a king named Ahab. 
the things that are altogether appropriate for us to see and apply to our own hearts and consciences together tonight. The first is this, I want you to see the certainty of the Lord's punishment for sin. The certainty of the Lord's punishment for sin. You know, students, if you just kind of look through verse 21 and following once again, notice the tense, the promises that the Lord is uttering, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. The dogs shall eat Jezebel. You only have to go about one page in your Bible to the next chapter to see exactly what God said was going to happen to Ahab happened as dogs were licking up his blood. You have to go a few more chapters into 2 Kings to find out that what he said would happen to Jezebel exactly happened to Jezebel. That she died and dogs ate her up to such an extent she couldn't even be buried, the text says, lest there be any remembrance of her in that physical sense. The Lord's punishment for sin is certain. It is swift. And it's a word of warning, isn't it, against people that, of course, in our time and space, I doubt any of us have spent time this week trying to commit the perfect crime of murder. At least I hope not. But you might have thought you committed the perfect crime of what you saw in your room when no one was looking. What you thought in your mind that no one observed. What you said to your family that not many heard. How many times when we think of secret sins that are unmortified in our lives, what we're probably stoking and not even realizing is something that we think is a perfect crime that we've gotten away with. And yet the Lord sees all things. The Lord knows all things. The Lord will punish the sin, just as he does with Ahab and Jezebel. So you need to see the certainty of the Lord's punishment for sin. Secondly, and lastly, you need to see the mercy of the Lord's patience towards sinners. You know, in that sermon that he preached over 1,200 times, R.G. Lee spoke of King Ahab in a very memorable way. He called him the most vile toad that ever squatted on the throne of Israel. He was the worst of all kings. That's kind of what the text says, isn't it? Verse 25 there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of Yahweh like Ahab, whom his wife, Jezebel, incited. Now, kids, it's telling us Ahab was the worst of the worst. But notice what happens in verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejectedly. And the Lord says now to Elijah, look at verse 29, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. And of course you have to ask the question here, is, is, is Ahab truly repenting of his sin? Is the worst of the worst, the vilest toad who ever lived in Israel, actually repenting of his sin? Some people throughout the ages have thought he actually here is experiencing a genuine conversion. I think it's actually better for us to see it as nothing more than just external remorse over his sin. For as the text continues, it's quite clear that there's no restitution or reconciliation that's offered. There's no new obedience in Ahab's life. 
What the Lord is doing is staying for just a brief moment his hand of execution. The dynasty is doomed. But the Lord is patiently waiting before the sentence would fall. And why is he doing it? Surely, no doubt, because he wants those to hear of the sentence and be warned to know the fear that belongs to the just punishment upon sinners and to find true life in believing in the Lord. And isn't this the truth that even Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, that the Lord even continues to be patient with people like us and we dare not presume upon that kindness, that patience of the Lord, knowing that it's meant to lead us to repentance. Sometimes one of the truest sign of the godliest saints is a genuine awestruck, amazed reality that I'm still standing here. After everything I've said, everything I've done, everything I've thought, I'm still standing here. That the Lord hasn't struck me as he righteously could with his judgment from above. So it's even pointing us, I think, to a fourth character in the text there in shadow and type. Because you have a covetous king, murderous queen, and righteous lord. Maybe you see how it points us to a gracious savior. Because Jesus comes as the true Israel. Israel likened throughout the Old Testament to a vineyard. He's the owner of a vineyard. False charges. The exact same two false charges are brought against him. That he has committed blasphemy and treason against the king. False witnesses set up to confirm the false charges. This owner of a vineyard likewise is taken outside of a city. Made to endure the most shameful and humiliating of executions. But of course, the great good news of this gracious Savior is something that Naboth couldn't offer even to a man like Ahab. For Jesus, in his death, he can offer life to sinners who deserve God's just punishment. Because of course, what the story is showing us is that God will certainly punish sin. He will punish you for your sin. Or if you look to Jesus Christ, he will punish his beloved son for the sins that you have committed. And so it's incredible the privileges that Ahab and Jezebel were so keen to do little with. They had a godly, faithful, next-door neighbor. They had one of the best preachers in human history. Surrounded by God's truth. And yet their covetousness, murderous hearts run amok. And so they are killed for their sin. Let it be tonight even a warning against you for the perfect crimes that you think you have committed. And look to another one that died. Owner of a vineyard and the place for sinners like you. That his blood would pay the price that you deserve. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask this night that you would in your patience, your forbearance, your loving kindness towards us, direct our hearts to the steadfastness of Jesus Christ, a Savior for sinners, in whose name we pray, amen.